Do you guys have any theories about why spirits might linger at these locations? Me? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, I'm one of those to where I believe, you know, if a child was to pass away or whatever, they would go to where one of the places they had most connection to. Uh-huh. And if the child passed, you know, in elementary school, they have a lot of connection to that school. That's where their friends were. That's where they had fun. That type of thing. You know, it's so interesting you say that, uh, Victoria, because some of the research I've been doing, I found this really crazy story about a young man who was once a student there, uh, but he and his friends took off um, and, and started hopping trains out west. So they left Bowling Green, and one summer they decided they were just going to take on the world and see what was out there. And when they got out to Kansas, this young man tried to hop a train, a freight train, and he fell under the wheels, and it sliced his legs off. Um, and that's what struck me when you talked about the spirit that you saw that didn't have any legs um, because they had to pay to bring his body back to Bowling Green. They had to have the funeral there. The story was plastered all over the newspapers. Um, it was like this big thing. And he lived like three blocks from the school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, that gave me goosebumps a little. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it goes with kind of what you were saying, too, that even though he didn't die there at the school, uh, but that if it, he enjoyed being there and it was kind of a carefree place for him, that maybe that's what he's gone back to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just really pleased to stumble on, on all of that. Um, and that's, that's what I like to do with these episodes is I do a little research and oftentimes I'll find uh, a really compelling story that seems to go along with some of these strange experiences. Hi, Carly. My name is Melissa Davies, and I'm so glad you could join our phone call here. I understand you're friends with Victoria. Yes. And um, if there's anything that you'd like to share in terms of experiences that you've had with the building itself? There was a daycare there. Well, I went to when I was in kindergarten, and I went there up until I was about in fourth grade. When I would be there, and we would all line up in the hallway, um, it, we would be upstairs by the dance room where the dance studio was, where it had all these mirrors in the room, and it had, it was, it was a ballet room. I would hear these little girls, like, running around, and almost like they were dancing, and they were, you know, trotting across the floor, and I would see things out of the corner of my eye, and I would look over, and nobody would be there. Hmm. Um, I would hear little giggles every now and then, it, and it wasn't like it was anything malevolent it was it was very um light hearted i guess it, it didn't it didn't really scare me okay when we would have nap time we would go down in the basement i would never ever be able to sleep ever we would all line up on the floor and we would you know lay down take a nap but i always felt like there was someone else there like of course there were our our teachers there and they were they were with us 
but I always felt like there was another presence there that nobody could see, but you could feel it. And it always, it always made my heart race and it made me not want to close my eyes. It would make hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It would, it would be very, very cold, just very uneasy. Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. You've just heard two accounts of firsthand unexplained experiences from the South Main School in Bowling Green, Ohio. Some folktales carry with them a reputation and fame that's already well established. But sometimes, you're just lucky enough to catch a glimpse of a legendary story in the making the beginnings of a mystery unfolding in your own time. Such is the story of the South Main School. Many schools built in the late 19th century didn't survive the wrecking ball. Most school districts elected to tear down and build new to suit growing numbers of students. Crumbling walls, tired boiler furnaces, and deteriorating classrooms were just too costly to keep up. New, technology-laden schools were built in their place, leaving antiquated school buildings with quiet hallways and paint-chipped walls. Such is true for the stately brick edifice found at 437 South Main Street in Bowling Green, Ohio. Remarkably, it still stands today. South Main School first opened its doors in 1890, a time in our history when American football was first being played at the collegiate level, and the modern automobile was just about to replace horse-driven traffic. Until that time, education in Ohio was largely contained to one-room schoolhouses. These quaint structures still dot the landscape yet today. At the turn of the 20th century, public education was moving toward a new model of instruction, toward the teaching of children in graduated levels according to their ages and abilities. Doing so required larger facilities with separate classrooms for each grade. The city of Bowling Green in Northwest Ohio has long been known for its value of education. This college town hosts the venerable Bowling Green State University, a storied state institution that serves 20,000 students every year. But way back in 1890, only about 3,500 residents lived within the community. The university wouldn't be founded for another 20 years. It seems the small village's focus on educating its young people would grow into the lasting influence that persists yet today. South Main School would welcome students for 115 years until its final closing in 2005. The three-story building would eventually become dormant for a period of years. The stairwells that once echoed with noisy children fell silent. Playground equipment rusted in the shadow of the lonesome structure. Perhaps this is when spirits took firm residence of the place. Perhaps the empty classrooms felt welcoming to lost souls. By all signs, these spirits grew bold and unafraid to make their presence known. If it's true that ghosts prefer old, abandoned structures to eke out their existences, South Main School would have proven the perfect place to roam free from the intrusions of the living. Perhaps class is still in session. 
After the school closed, the Bowling Green community began making use of the building in new ways. This included the creation of a dojo, the formation of a common space for the arts, and the establishment of a daycare for children. Many locals from the community drove by the place countless times, thinking nothing of it. For others, however, unusual experiences would plant seeds of folk tales that are growing yet today. In my research on the location, I had the great fortune to connect with three locals. You heard from two of them at the start of the episode, Victoria Canterbury and her mother, Randy Canterbury, as well as Carly Ellington. Now let's hear more details from Victoria's experience herself. Tell me a little bit about your connection to the school. I know you, um, your daughter went to daycare there. Is that the main connection that you had? No, um, my entire family worked for the BG City Schools. They were all custodians, and my dad ended up having to work over at South Main for a summer due to the custodian needing surgery. And that's where I was first introduced to the building, was in like fourth grade. All right, well, that's a long history that you have with the building then. Um, oh, yeah. Do you remember some of your first impressions? I know it was quite a long time ago, uh, but what you thought of it at that time? I remember going down in the basement where the boiler room is, because that's where the custodian's office was, was in the boiler room. I would always hear, like, a deep growl. Hmm. And my dad would always tell me, you know, you're just hearing things, or it's just the boiler kicking on, or whatever so it's one of them to where well dad says it's okay it's okay i always felt uncomfortable down there and you were about how old do you think i was in like the fourth grade uh that's right okay so right about the age where you know a lot of kids are still afraid of things like the dark and and what have you but it's something that really stuck with you oh yeah yeah oh sure what is it kind of like to be in the building now for my listeners who've never been there? Can you kind of set the scene for what it looks like and how it feels? It was like walking into a piece of history. Hmm. You can smell like old books, the smell of an old book. Yeah. That makes sense. That's actually really descriptive. I know what you mean by that. That's that's really cool that you put it that way. And then, like going into like a like an old rustic country home, you can smell the wood. So back in like uh, the fourth grade, you had these weird things in the basement and such, but your your dad was kind of dismissing that. But that was different from what happened. Um, you know, when you went to pick up your daughter. Right, because I, I would always tell my mom, I don't I don't want to go back there. So we never really went back to South Maine to visit my dad or whatever on breaks. Hmm. So the next time I actually went back into that building is when my daughter ended up going to daycare there. Did your daughter ever have any of those feelings herself? Or did she share that with you? Well, she would refuse to go to the bathroom because she always felt like the boogeyman was going to get her. Hmm. And that didn't normally happen other places for her? No. That does make you wonder. Yeah, because she was, 
when she was little, she was one to where she basically potty trained herself. She did not like wearing pull-ups. She hated diapers. So the girl wouldn't even like have accidents. But when she went to this daycare, she was having accidents because she was just refusing to go in that bathroom. Was she able to put into words herself? Why? Just or- that the boogeyman is in there. Hmm. So you had that kind of in the back of your mind, or, or you knew that that she was afraid of the bathroom before you had your experience? Is that right? The first day that she was there is when she started telling me about the boogeyman okay. in the bathroom. Right. And then I was just like, okay, you know, whatever. You know, I just let it go. And then I got to thinking that night, it's just like, well... I remember hearing growls in the basement, so maybe something's actually going on. I could see where it would give you pause. Yeah. Right. And then it was like a week later when I went to pick her up is when the experiences really started happening. Well, um, you know, in as much detail as you can remember, can you describe like from start to finish what your experience was? Yeah, um... I had worked late one day and I was the very last one to pick up my daughter and I was just standing outside of the room just talking with uh, the daycare worker and just at the corner of, of my eye I seen this little boy just walk right past and you can see her eyes look over and I turn my body to look and you can just see the torso and the head just walking by the torso and the head so no legs yeah oh man and then so it was a a little boy yeah about how old would you guess maybe oh lord probably like third fourth grade maybe sure and um any other details about the way that he looked or was dressed or well it looked like he had uh, suspenders on it almost looked like he was dressed up to go to the Zimmerman schoolhouse that day the Zimmerman schoolhouse yeah um all the BG city schools the elementary schools there would be one day where a class would go to the old Zimmerman schoolhouse which is just the one room schoolhouse and we had to dress up like in the little house of prairie days oh okay so the style of dress was was very old we're talking several decades right and that's I, uh, the only thing that could pop in my head was the zimmerman schoolhouse because okay. i still have my little dress that i wore from when i went there because my grandma made it um yeah and after we watched him walked by I looked at her and she's just all wide-eyed and I'm like well I guess I'm just gonna dress the elephant in the room did you see that no mm-hmm. and she goes yeah I, I've been seeing things for a while now and I only started like two weeks ago and I'm ready to quit <laughs> oh boy and this was the um the daycare worker yeah uh, she was confirming seeing what you saw she didn't just see it that time, but she had been seeing it for a while. Yeah. It didn't feel like uneasy or scary to me. It was just one of those to where I just, eh, you know, I just witnessed something. 
Now, did the boy, little boy, seem to recognize you at all? No, he mm-hmm. just walked right past. He disappeared into the very next room. And did your daughter, was she able to see this little boy? She always saw the girl. Hmm. And I think that was the girl that you had seen through the window? Yeah. Tell me more about that experience for you. Well, my experience is every time I pick her up and we walk out towards the car, you would see her in the window. And I always end up being, you know, the last parent to pick up their child, so she'd be the last kid there. Having this little girl just staring at me, I was just like, ooh, okay. Now there's another child in the building. So that would happen more than once? Yeah, almost on a daily. Hmm. Do you know, did the daycare worker see the little girl also, or...? I don't know if you've ever asked I never brought it up to her because I didn't want to make her even more scared. (laughs) I see. And and how would you describe the girl from what you could see? You can tell she had long blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And my daughter said that she had a white dress and it was long. But she could see, she couldn't see the feet. She could just tell it was a long white dress. Okay. And it was like she was just floating there. So she wasn't really afraid of, of these children and spirits. Right. It must have been more of a, a friendly kind of feeling that she had. Yeah. With that. Oh, yeah. Definitely having the experiences there opened my mind up to it more. Hmm. And ever since then, I've been intrigued by the paranormal. You hadn't had any um, experiences prior to this or interest and ghost hunting and all of that. Right. So it really has compelled you to dig further into this or try to understand it more. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My my daughter will be 14 in September, and the girl wants to go and investigate places. Hmm. So often, experiences like these only leave us more and more curious and desperate to learn more. This is just one of the many first-hand accounts of ghostly activity observed in this dormant, darkened school building off of Main Street. This kind of reputation is common among old buildings of this sort. It's something in their quiet slumber, in their crumbling facades, that seems to beckon lost souls. Why might they have chosen South Main School as their eternal resting place? According to records, no children ever actually died at the location. The presumption that spirits remain stuck forever at the location of their death is a common one, but it doesn't bear any significance here. As far as we can tell, no children ever lost their lives within the school's walls. What, then, might account for the claims of child spirits? What story might explain the presence of such ghosts roaming the halls and classrooms? Amazingly, in my historical research, I stumbled on a compelling story with a striking connection to the legless, ghostly boy seen by Victoria and the daycare worker. Come, hear the story of one Lester McCool. Lester McCool was born in 1888, only two years before the South Main School opened its doors. 
He was the third son of Jacob and Mary McCool, a growing family in Scrubgrass, Pennsylvania. The couple would add two more sons and a daughter before making the move to Bowling Green, Ohio. Jacob, the father, had found work as a pumper in the oil fields that dotted Wood County. Some of them remain yet today. The family would settle into a house on the corner of Grove and Pearl Streets, only four blocks walk from the school. Lester and his five siblings were some of the first students to occupy the new school building. No doubt, living nearby meant for a quick commute when the winter winds blew hard. We don't know for sure just what kind of student Lester was, but we do know a lot of his character and reputation within the community. That's due to the way in which he died. Stories of his death were plastered through local newspapers. For days. He had been known as, quote, the most popular and exemplary young man in the city, and his untimely death was universally mourned by all residents. The tragedy of the singular moment shocked the small Bowling Green community and set it buzzing. It was late July, 1908. Townspeople whispered to one another as to what actually happened to poor Lester, the young man they knew for his active role at the local Young Men's Christian Association, known better today as the YMCA. Lester had struggled throughout his schooling, and at the age of 20, he had yet to graduate high school. But if all went to plan, he'd finally be able to finish his senior year the following spring. Knowing this, he and two of his closest friends, Howard Decker and Russell Bates, vowed to set off on the adventure of their young lives. A lark, as Howard preferred to call it. The young men knew a life of hard work and toil awaited them after graduating, but that chapter hadn't quite arrived. Before them stretched one glorious summer, the summer before their senior year, the summer of 1908. They would go as far as the fates would carry them, westward. Tales of Lewis and Clark from their elementary history lessons echoed in their minds as the threesome started an exploration of their own making. For the first leg of the journey, they scrounged what spare cash they had on hand and purchased a train ticket for as far west as the money would allow. That turned out to be Kansas. Kansas, it was. They decided they'd figure out the rest when they got there and find work where they could. The world stretched far beyond the limits of Northwest Ohio. They were about to seize it for themselves. The story, as I'm relaying it to you, comes through Howard's telling. Russell chickened out shortly after the journey began. Or perhaps you might say that he came to his senses. Either way, he stepped off the train at one of the numerous stops along the way. I picture him apologizing to Lester and Howard, wringing his hat, and maybe excusing himself on account of some sweetheart that begged him to stay home. Whatever the reason, the threesome was reduced to a pair. Lester and Howard would carry onward. Soon, their train pulled into Monument, Kansas. Just picture them bursting out of the passenger car, the steamer engine still spewing white-hot plumes as their eager feet glided across the boarded platform of the local train station. And, according to Howard, they immediately took to canvassing the entire town. 
a process that took just minutes. Even today, this tiny town is unincorporated. No one had explained to the young men that Monument was simply a train stop and a small collection of houses that supported the rail workers. There was nothing to see or do. It's not hard to imagine the disappointment that must have sunk deep into their chests. Their friend had lost heart and turned home, and the first stop of their grand adventure turned out to be nothing but a few rickety shacks planted alongside a train station, all of which was surrounded by countless miles of flattened fields of grain. Just what were they to do now? And with empty pockets, no less. As Howard would later tell reporters, they had no other option than to set off on foot and hope they happened upon some bustling hamlet and, most importantly, opportunities for work. They made it as far as Page City, another unincorporated little speck of a town. The sun was just setting as they approached the outskirts. In truth, they were both fighting exhaustion by that time, and the discouragement in their hearts was a heavy load to carry. They planned to stop and sleep under the stars that night. Then, after a good rest, they'd set out again, moving ever westward, toward whatever the fates would deal them. The next morning, they'd heard from a local that a town called Winona was only six more miles down Highway 40. Their spirits lifted and a bounce returned to their step. They could cover six miles easily, and with any luck, they might not have to sleep on the ground another night. As they neared Winona, the two crawled under a small rail bridge to cool themselves in the shade. It was then that they heard the distant screech of a freight train somewhere distant across the flattened landscape. Lester popped his head up from under the rail bridge to get a better look. Sure enough, about five miles out, he could see the distant white plume of the steamer engine. It was headed right toward them. In a frenzied exuberance, Lester screamed. He yelled for Howard, who came scrambling up the bank. The two couldn't believe their good fortune. No more walking. No more Kansas. They'd hop this train and take it as far as it would take them. With any luck maybe even as far as Denver. Lester was the first to attempt to board the train. Howard yelled to him, grabbing his shoulder, telling him it was moving much too fast, that they'd have to make another plan. Lester ignored his pleas. After a couple more attempts, he managed to grab hold of the rear handle of a boxcar. His grip held, but the force of the jolt threw his body into the space between the two cars, breaking his hold on the handle. The wheels from one and a half cars passed over his thighs, slicing his legs clean off. Howard grabbed him by the shoulders and was able to pull him from beneath the wheels. He laid him gently beside the rails as the remaining boxcars barreled alongside them. Howard untied a red kerchief from his neck and waved it desperately at the train master who sat riding atop the caboose. The master signaled forward for the train to halt. The brakes screamed their high-pitched squeals over the heavy, pounding noise of the train. The train master hopped down from the caboose and ran for the bridge and the two boys. He'd had the presence of mind to bring with him a stretcher, which was kept there for just such occasions, as many transients were known to jump freighters in those days. He and Howard carried the maimed, 
but perfectly conscious and coherent young man to the nearby train station. On seeing his own injuries, the horror of them, Lester asked Howard to let him die. The only physician in Winona was out of town. A telegraph was dispatched to nearby Oakley, where a Dr. Winslow was dispatched. He would finally arrive an hour later. But there was nothing to be done for Lester's mortal wounds. All who were present recalled the young man's alertness until he took his very last breath. All were struck by his calm, by his resolve, by his acceptance of the inevitable. Lester blamed no one but himself. What remained when the light drained from Lester's eyes was a traumatized and grief-stricken Howard. He was surrounded by strangers. His best friend and co-adventurer lay dead by his side. Winona's townspeople didn't know much what to say or do. Eventually, a small group of women gathered wildflowers from a nearby field. They placed them on top of a casket they had procured for the unfortunate young man from Ohio. Howard telegraphed home word of the accident. He had to wait for money to be wired to support the return trip. No doubt, in some state of shock, and in a kind of painful irony, Howard would then peacefully board train 102 to accompany his friend's remains back to Bowling Green. And when it finally reached a stop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the train's porter would forget to tell Howard that they had transferred the casket to another train bound for Toledo. Thus, Lester's body would arrive at its final destination without Howard. He had unknowingly missed the connection. The necessary papers, including the death certificate, were yet in Howard's breast pocket. This resulted in a painful delay, as the body could not be released to the family until Howard and the papers finally arrived hours later. At first... Howard was too overcome with grief and guilt to talk to anyone about the details. Rumors soon began to spread around town, insinuating perhaps some foul play had entered into the mix. This enraged Howard, and perhaps brought him out of his dissociative state. After six days of it, he'd had enough. He sat down with the reporter from the Bowling Green Sentinel Tribune and told the whole story. That's why we have the rich details of the saga yet today. Is it possible that the legless child spirit sometimes spotted at South Main School is the lost soul of Lester McCool, a young man who set out to explore the world and lost his life in the process? Perhaps his spirit prefers an existence that resembles a simpler time in life, his childhood days at South Main School. Perhaps it offered the warm memories of friends, laughter, and the promise of a bright future ahead. We'll never know for sure. If you'd like to learn more about South Main School, and perhaps even investigate it for yourself, you can. I was fortunate to have interviewed two founding members of Fringe Paranormal, They're the investigative team that manages the property today. Come, hear their stories. 
And basically, our mission is investigate the paranormal, see if we can explain it naturally. And if we can't, then it might be paranormal. And we try to use, you know, glazed equipment and theories and logic. So you're just really uh, curious, as are so many of us, and trying to understand these things as best you can using evidence where possible. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, too, with our mission is we kind of decided right at the get-go that we would investigate something once a month. And maybe it's an investigation. Maybe we just go to a cemetery. Maybe we just go to a presentation. Maybe we go to a Comic-Con or something. But just do something once a month to keep ourselves updated and, you know, just keep that experience. So, um How long were you guys in operation before you became affiliated with the school? Well, the first investigation at the school was actually in July of 2009. That's when it was a common space for the arts. Mm -hmm. So we were just investigating there as Fringe Paranormal in 2009. Did it have a reputation at that time that you knew of, of being haunted uh, before you started investigating? We were actually introduced to the school by one of our teammates who was actually working at the common space. She had owned a dojo in the common space. She was a teacher. So she told us, hey, you guys, this weird stuff is going on at the school. Let's go and investigate. So apparently somebody had been having some unusual experiences there. Yeah. Even before she told us about it, recently we've been hearing from former students where they had experiences there. Workers had experiences there as well when it was a school, actually. And what were some of the typical stories you were hearing at that time? Eerie, creepy feelings, footsteps from out of nowhere, phantom footsteps, uh, piano music coming from the gym when there was nobody in there, back when it was a common space and the gym was locked up at the time. Mm -hmm. Things would move from one place to another. Somebody would set their keys down in one place and then not be able to find them and find them somewhere else. Okay. Um, Just a lot of unusual, you know, sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And enough that you guys were in the process of starting your group. And I am assuming you felt, okay, this is a good combination of things. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, do you remember much from the first investigation itself, what that was like? Yeah, it was pretty creepy. It was really dark. It was night. Um, a lot of things we were experiencing were the basics, like REM pod hits, K2 hits. But then things kind of started to ramp up. Throughout the evening, we hear footsteps on the first and second floor. One of our investigators was sitting on a stairway. He was hearing shuffling noises behind him. I think that was actually the second time we investigated. Okay, that could be. Yeah, Yeah, because we investigated, what, three or four times before we actually, I mean, we just fell in love with the place from the first time we were there. But I know the first time we did get that EVP and stuff there. Uh, Yeah. Okay. A few things like that, and the basic creepy feelings and stuff. And then it seemed like the next time we went, it ramped up even more. Can you um, try to describe how maybe the school compares to other sites that you've investigated? Um, we know Waverly Hills and Ohio State Reformatory are very active locations. Yeah. We think the school is very active, but of course, we're there quite a bit. So we're going to be able to experience more things. Whereas you go to Ohio State Reformatory and Waverly Hills, you might go there once a year and hopefully you'll experience something. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the school, we're there all the time. So we have a better chance of having things happen, of course. 
I can see that would cast a wider net, you know, for you guys to catch, you know, a variety of things. Um, whereas if you're just doing an overnight investigation or something, you hope you have a pretty active night. So it's really great, I would think, as a team to have a home base like that to work right. from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can kind of use it. We've talked about using it as like a little ghost lab where we can go same time every day for a while. We can mix things together. We can put out trigger objects and stuff like that because, you know, fortunately we have the access to it to do it when we want to. Okay. Do you have a sense within the wider community there, Bowling Green, uh, if it is attached to uh, myths or legends? Like, did it have a reputation in the community? Um, I'd say amongst former staff and students, it had a reputation, but not the community in general because the general community did not have access into the building, if that makes sense. Yes, right. Perhaps I told the artists and residents when it was a common space as well. A lot of students who have gone there would hear like the footsteps and just the creepy feelings going on. Yeah. I've had creepy feelings just going up the stairway to the second floor. It's usually in the same spot. I can't explain it. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But just Mm -hmm. things that happen. And I think, Kelly, too, I've seen a video of you describing a shadow person that you saw. Yeah. When I had gone outside to get some stuff out of my car... Um, It was a cold kind of winter night and we have a propane heater that we put up in one room because we don't have any electricity or anything in the school to keep it hot. So we try to keep like one run one room warm. So he was fooling around with that. I went out to my car to get some stuff, came back in. And when you come in, you can see down in the basement or up to the first floor. It's kind of a split level there. And I thought what I, I saw what I thought was Don down the basement. I kind of even yelled, what are you doing? Did you get the heat going? And then walked up to the first floor and he was up there. So then in retrospect, it was like, oh, that was really, that was more of a shadow. <laughs> I didn't really see features. I just, you know, allegedly haunted place and, you know, still didn't even think that that was a shadow figure when I saw it. Just Yeah. It's only in retrospect that you realize the importance of what happened. <laughs> yeah, because I was really shocked. I know I went upstairs and he was up there and I came back down and kind of looked and we tried to debunk it a bunch of different ways and couldn't figure out how to do it. So, In 1909, a Hungarian worker, a mason, they found his body in front of the school, dead of a heart attack. I think where they found him, it probably would have been right about there before that part was constructed, like right on the grounds. And that would also correspond to the activity in the basement that we're having, right kind of below that spot, because his body would have been found like between the basement ceiling and the first floor. When you're first under the building, you're going to come in through the entryway. In front of you, you're going to see the gym, which was built in 1958. And to your right would be the old school, which was built in 1890. Um, The school itself, built in 1890, closed down in 2005 as a school. From 2005 to 2013, it was a common space for the arts. After 2013, it was vacant until we got it in 2017. So as you enter the building, you can either go down to the basement, or you can go up onto the first and second floor. Basement really dark and creepy. And musty. If you wanted to smell for it, the smell would be just musty. Some place that's been closed up for a long time. Yeah, The basement is one of the more active spots in the school. First floor, 
not too much activity on the first floor. I think we're starting to get more activity on the first floor because that's where we had a little bit. Um, we had kind of a girls night with me and some of the girls and Don was there for a little while. And actually it was after he left, of course, that we did get some activity kind of in that common area out there on the first floor. So okay. I, I feel like the more we're there, the more we're finding things in areas that we didn't really think had that much to begin with, at least not for us. It didn't happen. So and then also as you go up to the second floor, that's one of our more active areas as well. Um, not too much in the attic. Of course, people haven't really investigated too much in the attic yet. Um, the school has a certain vibe. The vibe is different in the morning than it is at the night, in the night. It's just something, I can't explain it. In the daytime, it's different. But when, once it hit, hits nighttime or early morning, it's a different, whole different vibe. Yeah. And I would say um, other things you see as you're going through, there is because it was neglected for a while before we got in. And even now, because we don't have access to electricity or water, paint's peeling really bad. Some of the walls, the drywall's kind of crumbling because it just gets so hot and it's so cold and it's so hot and so cold. And once a year, we'll go in and with bleach and clean the mildew off of the basement and on the walls and everything. And that's why I say it's just kind of dank and musty, especially in the basement. I think that's part of what it gives it the creepy feel, although it's just, I don't know, it's a little bit of neglect. I mean, there's only so much we can do with it the right. way it is right now. The, the gym always smells kind of wet because the um, ceiling there is leaking and the the ceiling is literally coming down inside the gym. So kind of a bummer, but there's just not a lot we can do about that. We don't own the place. We just, you know, get in and take care of it as much as we can. If you ever watch the horror movies where it seems like the building is alive, kind of what's happening with South Main through the years as it deteriorates, it goes back to its old state where you, think, you see the paint coming off the walls and you see the old paint that was there. And you see where they painted the old brickwork. Well, that's coming yeah. off. So you're seeing the old brickwork coming back. So they're like the building is transforming back into what it used to be. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. That's poetic. I like that. Yeah. 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 Um, now, have you ever had a sense that uh, the spirits, that there's anything dark or malevolent that's there? Or is it just um, your run of the mill? No, I never I have. And even people, when I say I see a shadow figure, there's a lot of people that automatically say shadow figures are evil. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't get that sense even after I saw it. So I, no, I don't, I don't get scared there. Even when I'm there by myself. My impression is, and I think Kelly will probably agree that there are several different entities in the building. I think we have the playful entities, the shy entities, and just those creepy ones we really don't know what's going on yeah could be a combination of a few different things uh, what do you hope happens in the future for the building in the years to come um kelly and i were just talking about this during the past weekend we'd like to find some ways to get the general community more involved in actually exploring the building with us so we're kind of trying to figure out ways that we can do that it's hard with a lot of public things because, again, without the electricity and the water and things like that for people actually to be there for any kind of length of time or for us to really clean it well. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it makes it hard to think about having big group things there. Those so, logistics, yeah, could yeah. be an issue, sure. 
But generally speaking, though, you guys are hoping that it continues to serve as a place of maybe wonder and interest. Yeah. Right. And experimentation, of course. Mm-hmm. See what we can come up with. And it, it's nice. We do get some people that are um, past students of the schools, like from the 50s and 60s, that want to come in and see the place. And I always think that's kind of cool. I would guess that a lot of the folks that go through uh, investigations there, that they're eager to share with you whatever their experiences are. Yeah, I mean, when they're there in the school, during their breaks, they'll come up and say, hey, we saw this or we heard this, and do you know anything about this? And, well, yeah, we're very interested to hear that that from them. Is there anything particularly memorable about the teams, folks that you've had come through and what they've discovered? I know during one of our first public investigations back in like 2017 or 2018 a couple of us were on the first floor just chilling out we heard this big bang it almost sounded like a big piece piece of plywood fell from a ceiling onto the floor Mm. and we looked around we can find nothing that could have made that noise so that was pretty weird you couldn't ignore it if it's that loud yeah Yeah, everybody heard it so you know what was it Right. Um, I think what I was going to say, what I think is kind of cool, too, is we've made more friends like in the paranormal community. And that's been pretty neat, like meeting the other teams and, you know, just kind of being able to work with like minded people. We do have one friend that runs the Ghost Hunting 101 classes out at Owens. He's had his end of the class field trip at the school because we all just kind of know each other and hang out together and everything. So it's kind of neat meeting people and being able to help with that kind of thing too. Oh, sure. Builds a community. Uh, yeah. You just didn't have before. Yeah. So that's right. The South Main School in Bowling Green is open to anyone who might want to hold an investigation of their own. So if you have the inclination and the courage, consider booking your own investigation. Their website is hauntedsouthmainschool.wordpress.com. Come with recording equipment and maybe an electromagnetic field detector, but also come armed with a little knowledge of the spirits themselves. We've already learned of the tale of a young Lester McCool and the likelihood that his legless form still roams the building's aging floors. But in my ever-deepening research, I've stumbled on additional evidence that points to yet another resident spirit, that of the Hungarian Mason, whose body was discovered there early one Sunday morning on March 28, 1909. Paul Forkos was one of nearly 700,000 Hungarian immigrants that settled in the U.S. at the start of the 20th century. One of the largest concentrations of Hungarians came to call Toledo home. You can still see remnants of their influence yet today. In the heart of the city, just off the southern bank of the Maumee River, you'll find St. Stephen's Hungarian Catholic Church. Most likely, Paul had worshipped in its pews, receiving Holy Communion at Sunday morning Masses. But when it came to the work week, Paul was as hardy a worker as you could find. Like so many of his countrymen, he had immigrated in hopes of finding financial security and a chance to lift his family out of poverty. In 1905, At the age of 37, he embarked on a steamship out of Hamburg, Germany, leaving his wife and three children. He'd found work as a laborer with the Mercer Cement Block Company of Toledo, Ohio. 
His hopes were to eventually save enough money to send for the rest of his family. He'd scraped together just enough funds for the deposit on a small apartment somewhere in the Hungarian neighborhood of Birmingham in burgeoning downtown Toledo. When that fateful day in March 1909 arrived, Paul had already been working as a mason for four years. He was just short of reaching his financial goal. One extra day of work added to his weekly wage would finally put his savings over the top. He'd been dreaming every night of the day they'd finally arrive, after their long voyage across the Atlantic, to join him. Perhaps that's the reason he refused to climb into the wagon at the end of the workday on Saturday, March 27th. He and his crewmates had been putting the finishing touches on a repair to stonework at the South Main School. It was backbreaking work. His crewmates, mostly fellow Hungarian immigrants, were eager to return home to their community in downtown Toledo, nearly 25 miles north of Bowling Green. As much as he needed the rest, Paul would only wave his goodbye as the others climbed up into the wagon. The knowledge that he'd soon see his family gave him all the energy he needed. He'd stay all day Sunday to finish the job, earning the extra pay that would allow him to send for his wife and kids. He'd spend the night on the floor of the empty school. For all his earnest devotion to his job, Paul's deepest wish to be reunited with his family would be denied him. In the early morning shadows, as the sun rose over Main Street, a passerby spotted the slumped-over figure of a man in boots and overalls. He hadn't made it far from the front entrance of the school. Presumably, in a hurry to finish placing the weighty stones, he'd overexerted himself. Late that Saturday night, when a pain in his chest grew from an annoyance into a searing explosion, he dropped his tools, stumbled out onto the manicured front lawn, and fell forward. There, he remained, until a local from down the street spotted his unfamiliar frame lying motionless in the cold, frosted-over grass. A hasty examination of his remains by a medical examiner concluded heart failure due to exertion. A brief notice of his tragic death was mentioned in the local newspaper and directed readers to his burial in Oak Grove Cemetery. Mysteriously, a search of burial plots within this Bowling Green Cemetery contains no listing for Paul Forcos. It's assumed he was placed in an unmarked grave shortly after a cursory funeral service the morning after his death. Only the undertaker and his staff were known to attend. Confoundingly, authorities noted that they were unable to notify any friends or family of his death or burial. It ought to have been easy enough to notify his employer and crewmates at least. But in the end... Paul had died in the wee small hours of a Sunday morning and was buried by Monday afternoon. Why the rush? Why the lack of any real effort to notify significant others? And most importantly, why is his grave not recorded in cemetery records? These questions remain unanswered. Only a couple days later, county officials did make contact with his employer. His closest friends and co-workers told of the years he had spent scrimping and saving for tickets for the rest of his family to join him. Now, word of his tragic death would be received by his wife in the form of a letter, written in Hungarian, 
signed by his foreman. No doubt it spoke of Paul's devotion to her and the children, and of the deep sorrow that all felt on learning of his sudden demise. The questions which surround the circumstances of his death and rushed burial have never been addressed. Paul was one more immigrant laborer, alone in this country. It's likely many assumed that he had no family worth contacting, and in truth, few if any of his co-workers likely had the resources or the social standing to question the way in which his burial was quickly completed by local authorities. The quick burial in a pauper's grave may have been a more common outcome for poor immigrants than we'd like to believe. But what may have come of Paul's spirit? Some believe it remains there at South Main School, working to complete that last job, the one that would book passage for his family to come join him. Perhaps he's still there, mixing the mortar, lifting that last stone into its resting place. Can you see him in your mind's eye? Can you feel the hope in his heart? So the next time you're driving around your own neighborhood, slow down a bit. Take notice of bits of architecture that harken back to an earlier time. These structures offer a reflection of times gone by. They're monuments to history itself. But oftentimes, on deeper inspection, they offer even richer insights. If you're a believer in ghosts, perhaps these old buildings are homes for wandering souls. Some souls, like Paul, are left with unfinished business, their most ardent desires unfulfilled. Others, perhaps like Lester, yearn for simpler times. Perhaps their ghostly appearances reflect an attempt to relive the happier moments of their lives. Whatever the reason, let's hope that someday these souls find their way toward whatever lies waiting for them on the other side. This concludes today's episode on the South Main School in Bowling Green, Ohio. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. You can also find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. Keep wondering.